welcome to the Safe Space Podcast. I hope you find whatever it is you need here with me in order to help you unlock what I like to call those light bulb moments. I just want to start off by clarifying I am in no way a medical professional or expert in the field. So if you need assistance, please speak to a trusted person or professional as the content can be triggering for some people. And we also want to acknowledge the traditional owners of this country throughout Australia and we pay our respects to the elders of past and present. Now, let's get into it. For a lot of people, sex can seem like an icky or uncomfortable topic, especially if you've ever had that awkward birds and the bees chat with your parents. But there is really no reason for it to be awkward at all. So unless you're already hot and heavy in the thick of it with someone, do we ever rarely get the opportunity to talk about what sex really encapsulates? And no, it's not just about getting down and dirty. And by not including a healthy dialogue around what sex really is, or at least should be, in our everyday lives, how can we expect anyone to understand their own bodies, their sense of self, or respect for others? Because the way in which humans work is by filtering information we get from around us, like what we see or what we hear in our everyday lives, in order to understand our sense of self. So yes, understanding not just sex as a normal and natural part of life, but having the right tools to understand people's bodies, boundaries, and identities that come with sex-positive education is so important. Today, we get to chat with award-winning psychosexologist and, might I add, new author of The Sex Ed You Never Had, Chantelle Otten. So, Chantelle, tell us a little bit about how you got started with sex-positive education. Okay, so when I was growing up, I don't know about you, but I never learnt about sex education in a healthy pleasure focused way I don't I mean I didn't even have sex ed when I was in school you know I had to learn through you know you always have like an older kid who shows you like a a pornography kind of magazine or you hear about porn on the playground and so I um, am a curious cat and I of course looked for that so I learned about sex from porn and I do think that it really made me quite performative as like a sexual person as well and I I kind of you know I can look at it now after a lot of reflection and and being 30 and going through different relationships and also being a sexologist and seeing how pornography can affect the way that people view what sex is and go wow like that wasn't healthy like it's not healthy to go into a scenario where you feel like you're there to please the other person and your body is there for their pleasure so If I look at the way that pornography and media has taught us what sex is, it is fast paced, it's rough, it's, you know, performative, it's loud, you're both having orgasms at the same time, it's kind of, it it, it is a theatrical, uh, I guess, experience and if I look at like real life sex I go wow you know you need to have communication there needs to be consent there needs to be safety we need to use condoms if we you know have to um and we also need to to really look at the fact that it's messy and it's you know there's different liquids and it can smell a bit and you know it's like sweaty and I think like it's it's kind of a totally different to this very theatrical performance that we do see in media and in pornography. 
Yeah, 100%. And I guess it kind of reminds me of that Instagram versus reality concept. So it's like what you see is not what you kind of get. And how do you think that impacts people's understanding of sex in that way if it's not really what they can expect? The way that I see that impacting on on people is they, re- I, I think that it kind of has a shadow of shame. You know, I'm not like that. Like, I don't look like that. I don't sound like that. My body doesn't work like that. My labia looks different than that. My penis looks different to that. So there's a lot of comparison with unhealthy and unrealistic standards. So I really do think that we are blessed first and foremost in 2021 to be able to see media on social media that that is a little bit more real life, that is a little bit more realistic um, and we see bodies that are a bit more realistic as well. Um, I know that we have a lot more ethical porn. I do know, however, that we probably need to do pornography education. It's not something that we have that I have spoken about in the book. Um, I do think that as parents, you need, you know, we need to be saying to our kids, you will see this at some point and this will be um, something that you think is how we should view sex. But actually, this is the way sex is meant to look. And sex is about connection and sex is about intimacy and it can be about love. But, you know, mainly it's about pleasure. It's about mutual pleasure for both of you. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I guess um, the other side of it is with that whole notion of um, having open and honest communication around boundaries and sex, there is still so much stigma or taboo associated with, say, certain words like penis, vagina, even the words like rape or sexual assault it's all very taboo still so how do you think that kind of you know stigma associated with certain types of words impacts our understanding as a society well I think that if we feel ashamed to name our genitals to name our bodies to explain what happened to us there's a reason behind that there's a reason why we've been taught that we're not allowed to say vulva or that it's shameful or weird to say vulva or penis or I've been assaulted, this is how it's impacted me, or my friend was assaulted, I'm not sure what to do, you know, um, or I'm afraid of being assaulted, you know, how I need help. Like I think if we have been taught to feel ashamed of that, that means that we internalise our feelings a lot more. Um, and it also means that when we do need help, we we feel this barrier that we can't really get past and it leads people to feel like they have nowhere to be themselves, nowhere to feel like it's normal to have these feelings, like they should block these feelings down and that can lead to, you know, unsafe interactions, that can lead to unempowered sex, that can lead to you know, shame, stigma, low confidence, you know, body um, body issues. And I, I do think that if we can feel like we're, we're able to actually express how we're feeling and, and what, um, I guess we are, you know, feeling vulnerable about, then that leads us to a place where we can actually change and work and, and grow from that. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you've said there. Yeah. And also the other thing that I, to this day, personally, I still can't wrap my head around is how, male and female bodies are sexualized in such different ways, like different parts of their bodies as well. 
are you able to kind of explain that a little bit further? Do you think about why like male nipples are accepted, but female nipples aren't and things like that, like the difference between how different bodies can be sexualized? Yeah. And I think we actually need to go beyond male and female. I think we have to go more towards like masculine and feminine because even like with my friends who are trans, you know, they are trans mask. um, They are still not able to share their nipples because they were born and assigned as a female, you know, they were assigned female. So they're not able to show a certain part of themselves. And I, you know, I think that this narrative that you know, those who are feminine are, are really like temptresses and they are troublemakers and they're just here to challenge like the patriarchy and to step out of line. Like that's what we are saying every time we cover up a nipple that belongs to a feminine person. You know, we're saying you are not accepted. This has to be, you. if you show this, you're sexualizing yourself. If you wear those clothes, you're sexualizing yourself. You are the problem we're not the problem for seeing you in that way. You know, we have gone for hundreds of years saying that breasts need to be covered up, which sucks because I even think like for so many people that are just embracing the nipple and wearing like even like singlets where you can see hard nipples coming through, they're even stigmatized. They're seen as like overtly sexual. Whereas no, they're just not wearing a bra. It's very normal to have hard nipples if it's cold or if you're aroused, etc. And I think it is such a shame that we're still at this point in 2021, especially with the government that we have, um, where we're having to fight for equality and we're having to fight against the patriarchy so much. Um, so look, I think that we're very lucky. We've got people like Grace Tame. We've got, you know, Brittany Higgins. We've got people who are stepping up and saying, this is absolutely not okay. And I'm going to risk my health for the future of Australia. I do think that that's an absolute shame that they're having to be re-traumatized every single time they fight against this patriarchal um, government that we have. But I am very, very grateful for pioneers um, and every single person who is going against the grain and challenging these you know, sexist, traditional views of who can be, you know, themselves in public and who can't be. Yeah, and that's exactly it. It's, to me, it still blows my mind, but it it's just so entrenched in our society that, yeah, like you can't even see a nipple, God forbid, underneath a piece of clothing. Yeah, so also I was going through the book and you mentioned how no means no is an outdated kind of saying, especially around consent. How do you think that that's changed now and how do you see that saying change moving forward? Well, I mean, no means no is really rough because it, like, if you're someone who's in a compromised position, you're lying there, you don't want to do something, but you're scared because you've been told you're not allowed to speak up. You're not allowed to say what you feel like. You're not allowed to say what you want. Maybe you've also had bad experiences where you have tried to stand up for yourself in the past and you've been shut down. In those scenarios, it's literally like jumping out of a plane with no parachute. You freeze. It's fight, flight, or freeze at that point. So putting putting the pressure on the person who's having a flight, fright, or freeze moment, you know, an anxiety-ridden moment to say what they actually feel that's really too hard. It's too hard. You get flooded with emotions. You know, you get whatever many years of people saying, you're not allowed to say that. Just do what you want. It's going to be painful. You have to, you know, 
you have to sacrifice, you know, you have trial and error, whatever. If you don't want to do something, you don't have to do something. And I think that that's where we need to be talking about affirmative consent and having discussions prior to sexual encounters and really learning how to be vulnerable and hoping that the person that we're being vulnerable with will accept that and be woke enough to interact with you in a sex positive individual positive way you know I respect you I respect your boundaries what like these are all the things that we can do without me having to ask for affirmative consent before every single notion so give a list like you don't have to ask me if you want to go down on me or if like you want to you know eat my ass or whatever it is but you do need to like I need to know if you want to go any further than that and it's not a hard conversation it's just a hey do you feel like this yeah, maybe I do. I don't know. Or I'm not sure yet. You know, I think it is about having that level of trust and sensitivity with your erotic partners that we really need to place an emphasis on. Yeah. And I think even still, there is that whole stigma around having that conversation in the first place, or it's like a vibe killer, or it's not fun. And I guess, how would you suggest people incorporate that into their sexual experiences? Try and do it before you get get into the bedroom. I think if you've got your pants down and you're nude and you're you're kind of in the middle of it, it's a bit hard. I think if you if you know you're going home with someone or like you know you're going to be getting down and dirty, like just do a quick one. Hey, by the way, I am very sex positive, so it'll be such a turn on when you tell me that you're there to look for my pleasure and we have affirmative consent involved. And if they're like, what's that? You go, well, maybe we should pause for a minute. Do you want me to teach you before we go into the bedroom? Maybe we should have a chat about what we want. I don't think that there's anything unsexy about that. You know, I think it's, I think it's sexier that you know what you want, you know, and you can say, this is how I roll. Like, this is my bag. I am sex positive. I am safe. And let's level up together, you know? And I think especially in long-term relationships, affirmative consent definitely goes to the wayside because we tend to assume what our partners want. So I think that having alignment sessions and saying like, how are you feeling about our sex life? I think we should work on this. My preferences have changed from last time. And that's, this is all about sexual compatibility. Like check in with your partner. How do they feel? You know, does it make you feel good that you can connect with them and ask them what brings them pleasure? I think that it is such a positive experience to know that you're giving your partner a foundation to be able to talk about what their wants and needs are. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think it's mostly that gray area before you even get into the bedroom and especially with someone you might not be comfortable with yet. Cause it is such a vulnerable thing to start a conversation with someone you've only just met and there is a lot of, I think, just in my personal opinion, I feel like it might come across as like demasculating. I don't know. There's something about it that I think for a lot of people, it, it's like a confronting thing. And I'm not sure where that comes from. I think if we feel like if we keep saying, oh, it might be demasculating, then we're literally adding to that narrative that it's going to be demasculating. <laughs> Actually, it's empowering. So if we can switch the language around and go, I'm not worried about it. I think it's empowering. Then people will go, oh, yeah, well, if we're having this conversation, then obviously it's an empowering conversation to have. If we keep worrying about what it's going to feel like and we're worried that our partner is going to react from an ego-driven narrative, 
then we're going to be stuck in a place. And look, your partner needs to also take some time to learn how to react to these kind of things. But at the end of the day, if you're with someone that's sexually compatible to you, they're going to want to be on the same team as you in the bedroom. They're not going to want to be on the opposite team because it's not going to serve them in the long term. Yeah, 100%. That's great. I love that. (laughs) In your experience, have you actually worked with any, I guess, traumatized people? And how have you kind of, I guess, helped them through their experiences? Yeah, so my specialty is in um, extreme trauma. So I only see people with extreme trauma um, because it's something that I'm very good at. I think it takes a complex creature to understand a complex creature. And I would definitely categorize myself as a very complex creature. Um, and so with the patients that I see that have trauma, you know, it's a whole myriad of concerns. It's not just a traumatic event. It's everything that has come after that. You know, it's it's mental health concerns, it's eating disorders, it's inability to know how to make friends, it's lack of trust, it's burnout from the healthcare system, it's so much like it's and my job is really to not just talk about sex, my job is to integrate that person into society feeling confident enough that they can manage themselves you know, that they don't feel like they have to rely on their therapist or their specialist team to hold them in a space. I want people to feel like they can develop a sense of autonomy, of trust and safety in other people. I want them to have the right people around them. Um, and, you know, I work on their sexual concerns, yes, but mainly I work on their uh, sense of empowerment within themselves, you know, and in terms of the people that I see, like, you know, quite a few of them have even been at the point where they're not even verbal when they've met them because it's, they, they are so scared to express themselves that we start off our therapy with drawing, with writing down, you know, with learning how to not have a a triggered response. um, And, learning how to, if that does happen, to not feel ashamed, but how we kind of recover from that really quickly. So it's really, I spend a lot of time developing a sense of rapport and trust with my patients before we start moving on to the the real challenging things. And I work with a team, you know, I'm not going to fix everyone's trauma. I work with EMDR therapists. I work with pelvic floor physios. Um, I work with psychiatrists to make sure that my patient feels like they are really well taken care of and that I'm managing their case in the best way possible yeah yeah a holistic kind of experience and understanding I think is the best way because it's not just mental there's a whole bucket load of other things that come with it as well Mm. and I guess in that sense what would be say three things you wish like people knew about understanding you know, our relationship with sex that they probably don't know? I think it's important to recognise that sex is so individualised that I could never give anyone a formula on how to have great sex. You know, I can only give them as much understanding as possible. I also want people to know that it that it isn't like a one menu option, that we should have different sex menus, that we should be having different cuisines, spices involved, um, entrees, mains, desserts, sites, you know, it it shouldn't be the same menu every time because like 
when I go out, I don't want to eat spaghetti bolognese and tiramisu every single time I go out. I'd get bored. I don't want it. You know, I need to have variety. I need to have excitement to fuel my desire for it. Um, and I guess I always want people to know that it's never too late to learn. You know, just because you're at a certain stage in your life or in a certain relationship, it is never too late to feel motivated enough to work on your erotic life. There's no shame in it. Um, it's only going to cause good. It's not going to cause harm with the more information that you have. And I hope people feel empowered enough by my book to feel like, okay, well, I've got a little bit of information now and it's not that scary. So maybe I can work on this in a little bit more of a complex way and maybe seek out more, um, you know, even, even further bibliotherapy, different sexologists that cover different topics as well because there's a lot of wonderful books out there. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess how do you think by challenging these perceived sex norms it will change society as a whole and maybe even affect the broader rate of sexual-based violence we might see as well? I think that, you know, by having these conversations, by getting, you know, more pioneers who are really focusing on the hard-hitting topics we will be helping the younger generations before us. I mean, sorry, that are coming. Oh, my God, my brain. We will be helping the next generation. And I think that even though we're at a space where we're really having to, like, dig deep to to really learn about where we should have been, um, we can at least provide that level of care and information for others and hopefully prevent any sexual-based violence because people will have the tools to feel like they don't have to, first of all, assault people to get what they want. They can have a conversation, you know, because it's never the victim's fault. It is always the fault of the oppressor. Um, and I feel like for the victims out there, because there will be future victims, unfortunately, with sexual-based assault, it's not like these are accidents. These are, you know, intended assaults. Um, I, I feel like for those victims out there, I really want them to just know that, first of all, they're not alone. We, you know, we believe them, we see them, we hear them. Um, and what happened to them was absolutely not their fault. Um, and that there are people out there like myself who will be there to make sure that that trauma does not take over their lives in the long term and that they do have a beautiful, pleasure-focused, sex-positive future as well where they don't have to feel ashamed, where they don't have to feel like, you know, that, that <laughs> this body belongs to someone else because they took it from them. So I really want people to feel cared for and I hope that more information will be able to also point out signs of toxic relationships, toxic sexual encounters as well and, and when we have to put our foot down and say this is not okay. Yeah, yeah. And do you think better education around for perpetrators to understand I guess, better boundaries or that what they're doing is wrong? Do you think that would help shift something or do you think that that's just a whole different ballpark? No, no, no. I definitely, definitely think that that would help. I think if we got adequate sex education in schools, um, I do know that one of my staff members, she works in school. She also works with adult patients, but she works primarily with, with children. Um, and she tells me all the time about the warning signs that are there. These are learned behaviors. Um, and, I also know that 
Um, I have friends that are in Germany and they work on the pedophilia program there. So where, I don't know if you know about this, but in Germany, there are billboards, there are signs on trains, on trams saying, if you feel like you're attracted to children, please call this number. We're here to help you because it is a um, fetish and it is a really scary unhealthy, un, unwanted fetish, um, but there is also help for people like that who don't want to perpetrate, but that their mind is really pushing them in that direction. And don't get me wrong, I'm not here on the team of pedophiles. I am really just saying that if we had a foundation and a system where we could care for people who were feeling like they wanted to assault others or felt like they had aggression issues um, or, you know, sexual urges that were really unhealthy and scary, that they could also go to a safe space to get help as well. Yeah, yeah, totally, before it happens and prevention. Prevention, absolutely. And that, that program in Germany has been so wildly successful I wish that we did have that here as well. I have also re read, um, I've gotten letters from people who would like to have a program like that here because they're afraid of um, being perpetrators. Unfortunately, it's just not the area that I work in. Um, so I'm not able to help them. Also, I've already got a lot, I've already got a lot to do and I really want to make sure that I do it really good. So um, I hope that these conversations that we can get from the book empower people to also ask and like say, I don't know if I'm actually that healthy. Like, I think I'm also a bit toxic in the bedroom. What can I do here? Can I go see a sexologist? Can I go see someone that will be able to guide me in the right way? Um, and that that's an impo important thing to realize as well. Yep, definitely having more awareness around um, the realities that are out there. And I think that there's a lot of hidden things that haven't ever been allowed to have a time in the light. And I think that's exactly what needs to happen. And I think even when I was reading your book, you wrote something about in Australia, they have, they change the look of like vaginas or something so that when they're studying them, they make them look a certain way, but it's not the real reflection of what's out there. So it's just continuing this misinformation. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So what you're referring to is the airbrushing of vulvas um, and specifically of the labia minora, um, which is the inner flaps that we have. So for some people, they don't really have many. Like for some people, they might have ones that are more elongated, that are outies. Um, and, you know, we don't know as vulva owners what other people's vulvas look like because we never get to see them. Um, and we can hardly see our own because it's between our legs. So I think like that level of education, you know, I, I have um, wonderful people that are on the internet that have done a huge amount of work, like the vulva gallery, the labia library, comfortable in my skin is like a, is a website that my friend Ellie runs where you can go on and look at people's vulvas. It is like phenomenal so I'm really hoping that websites like that can be um can be taken on board and, and people can you know at least have a more comfortable notion of what is normal for them not normal for everyone else because there is no normal when it comes to to labia and our bodies yeah everyone's bodies are different and it's about accepting that and understanding that and not having this stock standard I guess understanding of what people are like without actually seeing them butt naked. <laughs> and I guess one of my last questions is what's something you've learned from this whole experience and why is it so important to you? 
Oh. <laughs> I've learned that you like there is always going to be surprises along the way and that you have to be curious. You know, I've never um been of the mindset that I know everything. I definitely do not know everything. Um I am just very much more open to hearing so much more about people's deep deepest kind of experiences and I think that people teach me so much on a daily basis so even I I also think like being a sexologist you're taking on a lot of people's feelings and emotions so for me I've also learned that self-care is super important and that it takes a village you know it takes a real community to be able to take care of yourself so I've learned a lot more about being vulnerable. I've taken some leaves out of my patients' books. Um, they're so vulnerable with me, yet I really struggled to be vulnerable with other people. And I even, you know, had to work a lot on myself, my communication and my relationships during this journey. So that's what I've learned. And I've also learned that I've got a lot more to do. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, and just inclusivity as well. I think that's the other thing I really liked about your book. Um, it just includes a whole range of, um, people in it, which I don't think has been done before. And I think that that's a great, you know, starting point as well for more, more learning. Yeah. So definitely I've tried to make it as gender diverse and, you know, I guess like individualized as possible. So I I hope that that came across because that's the one thing that I've been super anxious about making sure it's been really inclusive yeah yeah and um my last question so because the podcast is called safe space podcast and so this is a question I ask everyone but when you think of the words safe space what do you think of when I think of the words safe space sometimes I think of myself but sometimes I don't sometimes my brain isn't the safest space unfortunately so I've thought about this actually in the past six months quite a bit because with the amount of stress writing my book, you know, it led my mind to go to places that, you know, brought up trauma, you know, when you're really tired and you're, you're exhausted and you're working on things and you're super fucking stressed and you lie in bed at night and then all your traumas come up and you're like, no, like this is a time where I really need to rest right now. Like I don't need you right here, you know, um, and I've learned m- more coping strategies. So I've, I feel like safe space for me is, is about community. Um, it's the friendships that you have that are all encompassing, that are so accepting, you know, people that you can go to and really say, I need help right now and I need you to hold me in a safe space. So when I think of a safe space, I think of, you know, my partner I think of my best friends um you know I think of my mindset coach um Ben Crow who um Dylan has put me in touch with when I wasn't in a great place with myself and he taught me a lot about experiences and memories that are a lot safer than what I've got now um or what I what I had in those kind of heightened moments so Safe space for me is about community. It's about family, the family that you make, the family that you already have, if you, you know, if you all get along very well. And it's really about understanding that you 
that it takes time to make a safe space as well. And you, you don't need to have it all figured out. You have to reassess, you know, once a month, every couple of months, like where am I at? What What's good for me? What energy do I have to give? And how can I protect my own energy as well? Yeah, 100%. Oh, that's so great. Thank you. I love that. Definitely encompasses everything that I'm trying to encapsulate in this podcast as well, all of those aspects to make sure it is a safe and inclusive space. Yeah, amazing. I'm so happy that I could help a little bit and you're doing such a great job. Feel free to check out our other episodes in the playlist or if you want more Safe Space content, head to our website at www.safespaceproject.info for more details. And we can't wait to catch you next time.